I'm Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome! Welcome! I'm excited because this week we're talking about the Aristocats, which means we're talking about cats the Rachel's whole episode. time has come. My time has come. <laughs> I've been waiting patiently for us to review this very, in my opinion, mediocre film. But <laughs> first, Aaron, won't you give us a synopsis? Of course. The film opens in 1910 Paris, and we meet the cat Duchess, mother to three kittens, Toulouse, Berlioz, and Marie, as well as their owner, Madame Adelaide Bonfamille. I have no idea how to speak Spanish, so I'm just, just French. going for it. You mean French? French. <laughs> <laughs> you actually do speak Spanish a I little bit. I do speak a little bit of Spanish. <laughs> French. Yes. Uh, Bonfamille, probably. Bonfamille. Okay. And her butler, Edgar. Yes. <laughs> I got, got that one. Can I say, before we go further, that I had to Google Berlioz because never heard of him. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't know what Toulouse was either, though I got Marie. <laughs> Antoinette. They all did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was thinking, interesting that they chose last names for Toulouse and Berlioz, but didn't name Marie Antoinette. Like, you could give a cat the first name Antoinette. That's true. Is it our first glimmer of sexism? Who knows? Maybe a little bit. Who's to say? Anyway, I've interrupted you. Please continue. <laughs> Madame is drafting her will, and Edgar overhears her say that her cats will inherit her fortune until their deaths, and then it will pass to Edgar, mm. which is a ridiculous point. <laughs> yeah. But- Fight. <laughs> I love cats. I would be so pissed if someone left their entire estate to cats instead of humans. Right. Yes. Also, oh it seems gosh. like there's probably plenty to go around for all parties involved. So Edgar gets upset about this for good reason. I think if he, at least if he knows if he's in line for inheritance, then like for good reason. And he does some quick math and figures out that he might not outlive them based on the fact that they often live 12 years times nine lives. (laughs) (laughs) Which if you're on Edgar's side and like really believe that that is how that works. Okay, fine. But maybe Madame is like, Hey, here's this funny joke. where like, maybe the next, you know, 11 years, my cats have my money and then Edgar gets it. Like he'll still get it soonish. And Edgar's like, ah, this is going to be like, 120 years from now. Yeah. Silly man. Yeah. The logic doesn't quite add up. It is a funny joke, but I'll admit I actually missed it the first time around and like realized later what he had said when he was doing the math because he says it so fast. (laughs) First time I was, I only heard him say 12 years and I was like, Edgar, you're, you don't look that old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, 1910, anything could happen consumption other diseases probably <laughs> world war one <laughs> right that is on the horizon <laughs> <sighs> anyway so edgar doesn't think he's going to live long enough to ever see this inheritance so he decides to get rid of the cat 
But before we get to his master plan, we cut to the kittens for their daily practice in each of their artistic talents. <laughs> we have a cute scene where Toulouse paints, Berlioz plays piano, and Marie sings with Duchess. And when they're finished, Edgar arrives with their meal in which he's hidden sleeping pills mm. because Edgar will not do the dirty deed himself. <laughs> right. The conclusion I've come to, which is also makes sense for like a Disney movie, but still like, well, he doesn't. Come on, Edgar. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to kill the cats. He just wants them to disappear so that they can't get their inheritance. Right. It seems a lot easier to kill the Edgar, <laughs> but yeah, I guess he never does state his true intentions, but right. based on his not very effective plans, it does seem like he's just trying to get them as far away from Madame's home as possible. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. So in that vein, once they're asleep from the sleeping pills, he throws them in a basket and he drives them to the countryside, but we don't really get to see whatever his true plan is because he's chased by two hound dogs and he loses the basket during his escape. Mm -hmm. So now the kittens are out in the cold and the wet by the river and they're lost yeah, and they so don't know sad. how to get home. Right. Sad. Very Little sad. wet Berlioz is so sad. I know. <laughs> but in the morning, the sun is shining and an alley cat named Thomas O'Malley stumbles upon them and offers to help get them back home. They try a variety of methods of travel <laughs> where they hitchhike in a milk truck and they're crossing a train trestle and they nearly get hit by a train and Marie and Thomas both almost drown and then they meet two English geese and their <laughs> drunken uncle <laughs> and eventually mm -hmm. they reach O'Malley's pad in Paris. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Edgar realizes the things he lost during the chase with the dogs could incriminate him, so he returns to the countryside to retrieve them, conveniently thinking to bring a fishing pole with him. Because <laughs> how else would you retrieve a hat and an umbrella but with a fishing pole? Right. So silly. And also a mouse named Rockfort, which I didn't recognize at first but paul immediately was like hey that's a kind of cheese that's funny that is funny <laughs> i also it's appreciated like that rockfort had an amicable relationship with the cats which is mm -hmm. a divergence from past cat and mouse relationships we have seen such as lucifer and the and the mice in cinderella true and there are so many parallels between this film and existing Disney films that like <laughs> they had to change something. Yes. <laughs> so at least they flipped this one. The other thing I will say about Rockfort, he takes on a detective role of sorts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, is this the prequel to The Great Mouse Detective? One of my favorite Disney animated films of all time. <laughs> Oh, maybe. Maybe. Also, very excited that that movie is not too far along because I've never seen it. What? <laughs> Aaron, I love The Great Mouse Detective so much. I'm so excited yeah. for you. I am so excited. So, Rockfort, mm -hmm. he is a mouse who lives in the house. <laughs> I was hoping you were going there. Realizes they're missing and something has gone wrong and starts this search for them that is kind of like a tiny side plot, but is pretty cute. 
But also inconsequential, ultimately. Right, yeah. He doesn't really help very much until the very end. (laughs) But Rockford is very cute. Rockafort. (laughs) Because he is voiced by Sterling Holloway, who did Winnie the Pooh. And he's doing, like, the exact Winnie the Pooh voice here, pretty much. So it's very sweet immediately when I heard him speak. Mm -hmm. Back at O'Malley's pad, Scat Cat and his other musicians have arrived and they all perform Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. And afterward, Duchess and O'Malley have a sweet moment on the roof where O'Malley asks Duchess to stay with him. But Duchess is determined to return home to her lovely and lonely owner. Um, So the next day, they return to Madame's house but Edgar captures them first, preparing to send them to Timbuktu. Because <laughs> oh, that's no. the next farthest place <laughs> that he could think of. O'Malley sends Rockfort to get Scat Cat and the other alley cats to help them. And they fight Edgar. And the fight ends with Edgar getting locked in the crate, going to Timbuktu. And the cats are freed and returned to their mistress. And it's all very happy. And Madame writes Edgar out of her will and adopts O'Malley into the family and also establishes her house as a home for all the alley cats of Paris. Yeah. Which I did not remember and is super cute. It is sweet. I didn't remember that either. (laughs) And then cue the everybody wants to be a cat reprise that just reuses all the animation from the rest (laughs) of the film. (laughs) Yep. The end. (laughs) The end. So can we agree that the Aristocats is basically a mashup of Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, with a sprinkling of some other movies, but yes, definitely. Yep, cool. Just checking. (laughs) You know, I'm going to talk about it, obviously, but like Walt's gone. Yeah. Got to figure out how to keep the magic going. Do what you did before. (laughs) Yeah, just recycle that magic and use it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit, I don't think I ever thought about those connections until now. So Mm -hmm. it did not affect my viewing of the film. Like, I never thought like, oh, this is too similar to these other things. I've never had that thought until doing the research and watching this film now. Mm. Did you watch The Aristocats often growing up? Not often, but I've seen it multiple times Mm -hmm. and I mean it wasn't one of my favorites as you said I also kind of fall in the mediocre category (laughs) but it seemed to stand on its own and I knew a lot of other people liked it it definitely didn't feel like this you know lost child's sad film or anything (laughs) it was just another one of the old ones I'd probably put it along with 101 Dalmatians but like for cat people (laughs) yeah See, I think that's where I struggle because I am such a cat person and I feel like mm-hmm. this is a worse version of 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially looking at it now. <laughs> so I feel cheated. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Do well, you get you. a cat film ever? Doesn't he have another cat film? Well, <laughs> Oliver and Company is an animal film with a, yeah, it's a lot cat of dogs, as a protagonist. <laughs> True. The Lion King? Is that for cat? The Lion King is the ultimate cat movie. (laughs) Big cats. Big cats. Sure. I'll take it. Great. (laughs) Yes. So same thing. Seen it a couple times. Wasn't one of the favorites, despite being a cat person and being raised by my mother, another cat person. 
just wasn't part of the regular rotation. And yeah, watching mm. it now, I can see why. It is yeah. just okay. Kind of a fluff piece. And I think very much because of the reason you're saying, they just wanted to put something out there that would hopefully recreate some of their past successes. Mm-hmm. I do have one very particular Aristocats memory that has been like a big revelation for me in this like, you know, couple weeks of spending time with this film where as I was watching it, there were particular lines that stood out to me way more than they should have. I was like remembering very clearly certain scenes or lines of dialogue and it was random and I didn't know why it was like, I don't know. It was just so clear versus the other bits of the film were muddled and I hadn't I clearly hadn't watched it enough to have that strong of a connection Mm. with the film Mm -hmm. and then towards the end of the movie I figured it out when I heard Scat Cat go outrageous crazy (laughs) because I've heard that line so many times because there was an ad for the home video release of the Aristocats on the VHS for the Lion King oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) along with the disney resort vacations commercial exactly (laughs) it's it they come one after the other with that commercial that i talked about in our very first episode of this podcast that i have such also such strong like sense memories for so i finally at the end i figured out i was like that's why i know these lines these are the scenes that they cut together (laughs) to put into that ad to advertise the home video and that's why i know it so well even without watching this movie many times so that was just funny that everything comes back to the lion king vhs it really does and a testament to disney advertising really yep yeah and my inability to fast forward (laughs) (laughs) that was an advanced skill you know yeah yeah you might go too far not hit the button fast enough just watch just watch the beginning yeah you might as well it's fine (laughs) that's great (laughs) I love that. Interestingly, this is the first animated movie, the plot for which is entirely original to the movie. There Mm -hmm. is no source material, which I think is fascinating, but also makes sense considering what we've already said about its similarities to past films. Mm -hmm. But In terms of giving background on the story, I'll just say a little bit because I'm sure you're going to get into this more when you talk about the film background. But the Aristocats project began originally as an idea for a two-part live-action episode for Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Yeah. It was written originally by Tom McGowan and Tom Rowe with... Some input from producer Harry Title. However, when it was rejected for Wonderful World of Color, Walt suggested that it be developed into an animated film. Mm. So I have found conflicting information whether it was Walt or Title's idea oh, to make it an animated film. Okay. And I can't tell if it's like you know, if anyone did it, it was Walt. We'll just give it to Walt kind of thing. Mm. Or if it actually makes more sense that it was Walt because title worked in the live action side of Disney stuff. So like, why would he give away this project? I mean, I guess if he thought it was really truly going to be better at animated, then Mm. great. But so unclear on that one, but 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it was supposed to be live action and then moved over to the animated side. Hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot going on with that trio of creators. Some drama, exciting stuff. I will say that there's a little bit of debate over whether uh, the Aristocats should truly be called the first original because a lot of people advocate that it's Dumbo. Hmm. So I would still count this as the first original, but I would just too, for because, all the people out there. Yeah, the character of Dumbo was not original. Yeah, there was a character and some notion of story that originated outside the Disney studios with Dumbo, mm-hmm. uh, as with Lady and the Tramp, too. I mean, that was yeah a loose adaptation as well. Yeah. I stand firm in my declaration that this is the first original story. All right. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> we'll also have to see where we fall on if it's Walt or post-Walt because this is also a film that falls on that divide and people like to argue about it on the internet. (laughs) Wonderful. All right. So, but returning to those three creators, Mm -hmm. as Rachel said, the story was developed by Tom McGowan and Tom Rowe. McGowan brought the idea to Tom Rowe, who was an American writer living in Paris, and Rowe wrote the story that would become the backbone of the Aristocats. But McGowan had used this other story that they had found about a cat and her kittens in New York City. But I didn't find like what story that is or who it was written by or same even what level of story. Like, was it a book? Is it a comic strip? <laughs> like, yeah. What are we talking about here? All of that pretty much got thrown out the window except for this cat and kittens thing so still gonna call it original but apparently they needed some form of inspiration to begin with Mm -hmm. but tom rowe wrote the original story that was going to be used for the live action two episodes and that original story also featured a butler and a maid they were trying repeatedly to foolishly off their employer's cats in order to claim the inheritance So very similar to the story we see now, though the maid was eventually cut. But as Rachel said, the original script was rejected by an unknown executive at Disney in August of 1962, but Harry Title refused to accept that and dropped the script off at the hotel Walt was staying at in a visit to London to, like, somehow get a second read and get him to look at it. And Walt actually read it and liked it and approved, but recommended many changes. Mm -hmm. McGowan and title were fine with the changes, but Tom Rowe was not. And he wrote a very unhappy letter about it to Walt title responded to Rowe's letter on Walt's behalf saying that the changes would stay and you can just kind of deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. And after that point in the story, like Rowe's name is not mentioned ever again. So he Mm. just kind of disappears. I don't know if he was like, okay, fine. Give me my money. I'll move on. Or if he like stormed out, like no idea how he felt about this. He just kind of is gone and we have his story and that's it. (laughs) Mm hmm. So other projects for TV were taking precedence during that time. So the project was shelved until 1963, which is when someone suggested it would make a good animated feature. Mm -hmm. And everybody else agreed. And Wolfgang Reitherman, who's been the director of 
many of the films we've talked about recently, mm-hmm. heard about the story and suggested that it follow the Jungle Book to keep this animals adventuring line going in the hopes that they'd keep making money. Yeah. <laughs> so the animation team put it on their slate and title was replaced by Winston Hibbler as producer so that title could continue working on live action projects. Right. So now it's mostly Wolfgang Reitherman and Winston Hibbler working on this project. Then Ken Anderson jumped in. So that's where we start to get the art style that's very similar to, you know, the last five films, but very 101 Dalmatians originating that style. Mm-hmm. And Reitherman and Walt were working on the story, trying to simplify it and wanted to focus more on the cats. Mm-hmm. Walt's favorite aspect of the original script was that Duchess was insistent on finding a home for each of her kittens that matched their artistic talents. Oh, yeah, it's cute. <laughs> this storyline was very emotional. Mm. Duchess was like really sad to see her kittens leave, but she was so happy that they would find families that loved them and nurtured their talent. And it was about like letting go and following your dreams and finding people who love you and like all of this really great character development and emotions that were very common in Walt's conversations about character development that we've heard from prior films. That was really his, his shining part was characters and making sure that they were interesting and lovable. Mm -hmm. He wanted the kidnapping plot to be like a comedic subplot Hmm. that just kind of kept the laughs, kept it going. But like the important thing was this search for the kittens homes Hmm. and Walt approved the script in this state before he died. Huh? And then everything changed. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously, that does not sound at all like the film that ended up being made. Yeah, it changed a lot. So Reitherman then replaced Hibbler as a producer. Mm. So it was like just Reitherman working on this. I mean, there were other writers, but like he was the big driving force behind this. He removed the storyline about finding the kittens a home in the hopes of inspiring a more action-adventure 101 Dalmatians-style story. Mm -hmm. He also cut the maid character, and he was also trying to do these budget-saving measures, so he changed the kittens from long-haired Parisian cats to short-haired American cats Uh, so that they'd be easier and cheaper to animate. Oh, funny. (laughs) Seeing some of the original drawings were like they're big and poofy, and like they Uh looked all the more odd next to like an alley cat and then you get like this white poofy duchess character uh-huh. and i think it would have been more striking and like you know drive that like odd couple message home a little bit more mm-hmm. but it probably was way harder and sure. expensive yeah so rather was making a lot of changes but I saw multiple sources say that he wasn't looking to like produce Disney's greatest animated film. He wanted to make a movie that the team could deliver on time and on budget because they were still under the investor's scrutiny after Walt's death. Mm. So like it wasn't that he thought this was going to make it a more fantastic film. He thought it would be safe and be good enough Mm -hmm. and that's kind of all that mattered at Mm. the moment and like as we'll see he might have been right 
the other way was riskier, it sounds like, and mm. maybe wouldn't have made them enough money. Mm. But who knows? So with the development of the actual story, going back to the way that like the Jungle Book, many of the characters were cast based on their personalities and mannerisms. Mm-hmm. So the voice actors bleeding into the characters. That happens a lot here too. Mm-hmm. We see Phil Harris come back. He was Baloo in the Jungle Book. And now he's playing Thomas O'Malley. Mm-hmm. And they're the same. They're the same character. I can tell. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Ritherman told Phil Harris to play Thomas O'Malley as more of a Clark Gable. And I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> I mean, I don't, don't know Clark Gable's work well enough to like really judge that, but like sort of see it. <laughs> I- yeah, I mean, I guess if Blue is also Clark Gable because they're literally <laughs> the same character. Uh, I think he's supposed to be, you know, more suave and less like goofy. And he's a romantic interest, yes. a romantic lead opposite Duchess. So that makes sense. That mm-hmm. connection to Clark Gable makes sense in that way. But they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then Eva Gabor did the voice for Duchess and Lovely. Sterling Holloway, uh, who we already talked about, who had also done the Cheshire Cat and Ka did the voice for Rockfort. And we have to return to our Louis Armstrong conversation from last episode because the studio was set on having him play Scat Cat. Oh. And it's, it seems like he was supposed to do it. Like, I didn't find a specific thing that said like there was a contract or whatever, but it sounded like he had agreed and then he became ill and he had to back out. Oh, so who plays Scat Cat? Scatman Crothers plays Scat Cat. Yeah. And they instructed him to imitate Louis Armstrong in his performance. I wonder if that was insulting. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm literally the Scat Man. You're telling me to be this other guy. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, interesting if Louis Armstrong did like agree to do this. And I don't know the story with this illness. It seems like in some interviews, uh, multiple people said that he was like often ill. But I did a little bit of research. Very little. Like I'll admit very little research into Louis Armstrong. But I didn't see anything about like a chronic illness other Mm. than like his lip condition because he played the trumpet so dang hard yeah. that he would like hurt his lip. He like would split his lip open, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but so like, I feel like there's more here that I couldn't discover and like unearth. Hmm. But like Louis Armstrong has also performed at Disney, at least Disneyland, if not both Disneyland and Disney World, like multiple times. He made like a Disney tunes in his style album. Like he's a Disney fan, I think. Yeah. So I'm not sure that how he felt after the Jungle Book and maybe the conversations that he may or may not have ended up having. I don't know how he feels, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like Louis Armstrong was not holding a grudge. Okay. For King Louis, at least. All right. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe if someone else out there knows more about this situation, I would love to hear about it. Mm -hmm. 
So moving on from cast to the music, the Aristocats would be the Sherman Brothers last hurrah as the animated staff songwriters. Mm. I didn't find any specifics about this. Again, there's like very little research, I feel like, on the Aristocats compared to some of the other films we've talked about. Agreed. But apparently the Sherman Brothers were in some way unhappy with the way things were being run at the studio after Walt's death. Mm. But they were really close with Walt. Like, they loved Walt. Walt loved them. Mm -hmm. I feel like they had a very Walt sensibility in the way that they approached their work in the studio. Mm -hmm. So changing things might have just been hard. And that would make sense. Sure. They worked on Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the live action film that came out in 1971. And then they wouldn't return to the studio until the late 1990s to work on the Tigger movie because they had composed so many of that property's original songs that the people making it thought it was only right to bring back the Sherman brothers. Aww. But this is, this is the end of the Sherman brothers run. Cause I don't even think we're probably going to cover the Tigger movie. Cause right. I think that was straight to home video. But for the Aristocats, they composed several songs before Ritherman made many of those major changes to the story. Mm. So in the end, only the title song and scales and arpeggios were Sherman Brothers songs that ended up getting used in this film. Right. And it made them sad because apparently they wrote a lot of fun songs. Like there's one for the maid and the butler together and that got cut and stuff like that. What about O'Malley the Alley Cat? Who wrote that one? Terry Gilkeson, who wrote The Bare Necessities in The Jungle Book. So again, like... The most catchy song in both of those movies isn't the Sherman Brothers. Interesting. Well, okay. Also, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat is not the Sherman Brothers. Yeah. Which that probably is the catchiest song from this film. That was by Floyd Huddleston and Al Rinker. Hmm. So a lot of people working on the music here. Yeah, three different. Bruns is still the, he was still doing the score. So okay. the guy doing the score was still the same, but writing the songs was different people. Mm-hmm. So the Sherman brothers said that cutting their songs lost the film some emotional weight. But at the same time, Richard Sherman made it clear that he still liked the film and he thought Hmm. Ritherman's version was successful. It just wasn't what they initially envisioned, which is the same thing Walt had envisioned. Right. Makes sense. Doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like they hold a grudge about it, but it would have been a different film and they don't know if it would have been better. Yeah. Everyone's being very kind in all their interviews. (laughs) (laughs) The Aristocats premiered in the U.S. on December 24th, 1970, and was well-received. Its budget was slightly over $4 million, and it made $10.1 million in the U.S. and Canada in rentals by the end of 1971, which is only a million less than The Jungle Book, Domestically. So they Mm -hmm. had very similar domestic performances. The Aristocats did not do as well overseas. Okay. But like still did well. They were very happy with its performance. Hmm. Howard Thompson of the New York Times was very kind in his review, writing, quote, Bless the Walt Disney organization for the Aristocats. As funny, warm, and sweet an animated cartoon package as ever gave a movie marquee a Christmas glow. The film is grand fun all the way, nicely flavored with tunes, and topped with one of the funniest jam sessions ever. Wow. It's like one of the best reviews they've ever gotten. (laughs) Yeah, that's very, very 
favorable. <laughs> yeah. In contrast, Char- well, not that big a contrast. Everyone was still pretty kind about it. But Charles Champlin for the Los Angeles Times wrote that the film, quote, has a gentle, good-natured charm, which will delight the small fry and their elders alike, end quote. But he also said that the film lacks a certain kind of vigor, boldness, and dash, a kind of hard-focused emphasis, which you would say was a Disney trademark. Hmm. I was like, all right. I I feel that. I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. And then Disney historian extraordinaire and film critic in general, Leonard Maltin, wrote that... The worst that one could say of the Aristocats is that it is unmemorable. Mm. It's smoothly executed, of course, and enjoyable, but neither its superficial story nor its characters have any resonance. And that's how I feel, basically. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, just like it just kind of is. Yeah. And like it's fine. It's a fluff piece. It has cute moments. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't stick with you. Right. And that's all I have to say about that. Except for the fact that the C in Aristocats is capitalized. Yeah. Though not consistently, it varies depending on the source I was looking at. I guess it is helpful to differentiate it from the word aristocrat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's tough. Yeah. I was like, no, it's not. (laughs) And then... (laughs) And then I read something that was like in the opening title, there's that little gag where Toulouse removes the R Mm -hmm. and then shoves the word together and the shoving of the word together makes the C large. Yep. And then in the title card on the film, it says Aristocats with the big C. I was like, well, I guess that is probably the best source you're going to get. So can't really argue with that. I think it's capitalized, and it looks goofy. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Anywho, let's continue. Speaking of aristocrats, Mm. the film is aptly named because we see a lot of opulent wealth and or the opposite of that, apparent squalor of some kind depicted in this film. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the setting that they chose, Paris, 1910, is a really interesting choice. I did read that some of the creators in developing the story decided on Paris because they thought that European setting would give it some extra oomph the way that the setting of London Mm -hmm. supports the story in 101 Dalmatians. But here we are again with a setting in 1910. Lady and the Tramp, albeit set in America, was also set around that time. 1910 situates this story squarely within the period known as the Belle Epoque. I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) It literally means the beautiful age. And it's likened to the Gilded Age in the United States. This period is historically situated between 1871, the end of the Franco-Prussian War, and 1914, the beginning of World War I. Mm -hmm. An article from Thought Co. states that this is a time period in France when the standards of living and security for the upper and middle classes increased, 
leading it to be retrospectively labeled as a golden age compared to humiliations that came before and the devastation of the end, which completely changed Europe. However, the growth of this time period was very one-sided. This is post-industrialization, and while the richer were getting richer, the poor were finding themselves in, quote, cramped homes, poorly paid, terrible working conditions, poor health. And the idea of the Belle Epoque grew partly because workers in this age were kept quieter than they were Mm -hmm. in later ones when socialist groups coalesced into a major force. Sounds familiar. Yes. So some pretty strict class divisions that I think the narrative of the Aristocats really capitalizes on and emphasizes because mm. we have this very strict dichotomy between Duchess and her kittens who live in this gigantic mansion and Thomas O'Malley, who is essentially a vagrant, except for this quote unquote pad he has in <laughs> downtown Paris, which appears to be like an abandoned building. Yeah. I'm still trying to work through the classism of this film and I think kind of recreating the view that the people who wrote about the film or had the ability to present their notions and were probably of the upper class Mm -hmm. like you know historians and I don't know people who kept records of this sort of thing and weren't busy working (laughs) like it's the the way that they make the alley cat lifestyle look fun and interesting Mm -hmm. and that same sort of like freedom and music. They glamorize it. Yes. um, Is, you know, similar to Lady and the Tramp, that that view of like, there's this other thing that might be fun for a while, Mm -hmm. but isn't as good as home and the people who love you, which is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they also don't make the... As you like, you said this like squalor, and I don't know that we see that. It's like kind of implied, but the alley cats, like Scat Cat and the musicians, and then Thomas O'Malley are all still cool and interesting, and they don't seem sad. And so I don't know if it's just a like we're not going to talk about this and we're going to push it aside, mm-hmm. or if it is like actually being nice to these people. Not quite sure. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not going to be nice. They don't really care, but. (laughs) Right, right. There is a little bit of like humorous villainization of the alley cats. Mm -hmm. It's hinted at in the beginning when one of the kittens, I think it's Toulouse, says that he might need to fight if he comes across an alley cat. Because, of course, it's only alley cats. It's only people in the lower class, people in poverty who would ever resort to physical violence to settle a dispute. Right. Right? And then we see that as well at the end when Roquefort travels to the alley to try and get Scat Cat and the gang to come help Thomas O'Malley. Scat Cat and the gang are ready to literally slice open Roquefort (laughs) and feast upon him. And they're all in this alley in trash cans. And true, true. They're depicted as 
potentially dirty. They're certainly depicted as violent, as frightening. So I, I do really think they play up, in addition to playing up that part that you were saying, this sort of glamorization of a bohemian lifestyle, mm-hmm. they're also highlighting how frightening the lower class can be. And that extends to the fact that our villain is a servant. Yeah. Right? And yep. so how are we supposed to walk away with a message other than you can't trust the help? <laughs> The helper ungrateful, living in their cramped apartment in your giant mansion. <laughs> I can't help thinking what a Marxist version of this story would be, <laughs> where there would be like an uprising of all the servants in Paris, the proletariat coming together and calling for a, a recognition of their labor and a fairer distribution of wealth. <laughs> Aristocats segues into Les Mis halfway through. Yes, Yes, exactly. O'Malley on top of the barricade. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing I'll say about classism is a small moment you mentioned in your synopsis, the moment when Duchess and O'Malley are on the rooftop of O'Malley's pad and they have this romantic moment. It's an interesting scene for a few different reasons, but Marie and the other kittens are spying. Mm -hmm. And I forget exactly what the exchange between Duchess and O'Malley is, but the way Marie interprets it and reports it back to her brothers is mother is going to work for Thomas. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the only reason that's funny is because it's depending on the fact that the audience knows how ridiculous that is. Mm. Of course, Duchess would never work for Thomas. Right. That's not how this social system works. And so it's a joke because of that. And uh, kids are so silly. They don't understand the way of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't really think about that line in general. Mm -hmm. Then she also, when O'Malley, like she's saying like, this is such a nice place because, you know, she's having a good time. I think being free and meeting Mm -hmm. new people and she's a little bit flirty. So like she's having, she's having a nice time. Yeah. (laughs) And he says like, you like this place? This is the low rent district. Yeah. And she like stammers a little bit. And then she's like, well, you could use like a little tidying up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess the squalor she is definitely seeing. Mm -hmm. You're right. I also want to mention just because it really drives home this dichotomy that the film is creating and really makes your point, I think, in the opening title song, The Aristocats, Mm. which I copied down many lyrics from. I was (laughs) like, oh boy, here we go. (laughs) But one of the lines is that aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no. Which pets are never known to show their claws, which pets are prone to hardly any flaws, to which pets do the others tip their hats, ah. natural meant the Aristocats. Uh-huh. Yep. So that last one of like, 
all the other pets know that they're better and agree and tip their hats to yep. them. And I was like, you're so great because you're <laughs> rich. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. And then when she plays the harp during the everybody wants to be a cat I section know. and you're like, oh, you're you're better than them because you play the harp. Uh-huh. That's a rich person instrument. I don't know if you mm-hmm. heard. Right. It's yeah. also a womanly instrument, mm-hmm. fragile, delicate. Yes, delicate instrument, which maybe we'll come back to later. But your other bit of classism that I think we need to talk about is those hound dogs. <laughs> yes. Why are the hound dogs Southern, Aaron? <laughs> Southern American, to be specific. To be specific, because we're in France. Right. Because <laughs> we're in France and they have southern accents and it's like so jarring although like some of the other characters also have american accents it's like very sort of the stone mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah like the hound dogs in the countryside who are not the brightest bulbs of yep. course have southern american accents that is supposed to code them as like less intelligent and funny mm-hmm. and clearly going to be the butt of jokes And it's like, this doesn't even make sense. You are going out of your way to be classist. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Should we talk about sexism, gender roles, traditional families? Oh, my gosh. So many choices. Where to start? (laughs) Let's start with sexism and gender roles. Cool. First point of which is that... Female characters are decorative objects and or beauty is prioritized. The very first line of the film is Madame speaking to Marie and she says, Marie, you're going to be as beautiful as your mother. And that's followed almost immediately by Toulouse, a boy, causing trouble for the driver and doing something rambunctious. Boys will be boys. So there's this immediate juxtaposition of femininity, beauty, and masculinity, troublemaking, etc. Mm-hmm. Yes. I find the Marie particular like dichotomy of being feisty or having mm-hmm. like a little bit of an attitude with her meekness as well at times and her position and... I mean, like, I love the line where she says, ladies do not start fights, but they can finish them. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's iconic. Yes. It kind of undercuts these gender roles that we've seen built up in the past in that, like, she's going to be in her place until you do something (laughs) that (laughs) makes her need to step out and be strong and fight or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's funny. It's a witty line. Like, it's it's a well-written line. It's a smart line. But it's not enough that, like, Marie's actually going to be strong and fight anyone. Because she's also little and wears the bows in her hair that, of course, show that she's dainty. And then throughout the film, she is the damsel in distress. She has to be rescued twice (laughs) by Thomas O'Malley. She falls out of the milk truck and she falls off the train trestle. Get it together, Marie. (laughs) I said out loud the second time she fell. I was just like, damn it, Marie. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I was like, was rooting for you, you know? We like were all rooting for you. Some spunk. And yet when push comes to shove, you're all talk. Something interesting, speaking of the two instances in which O'Malley has to rescue Marie, those moments are very dramatic. They're harrowing. And we see O'Malley depicted as this very courageous cat sacrificing himself to save this kitten. On the flip side, shortly after that, O'Malley is struggling to swim in the river Mm -hmm. and is essentially rescued by two geese. They are these bumbling old ant type characters. Mm -hmm. And that scene is all about the humor and the silliness. So when men rescue women, it's about courage. And when women rescue men, it's silly and humorous. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And also, like, O'Malley is actively drowning. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, like you're saying, the scene is I'm much less worried about him Mm -hmm. like it feels like any second he's gonna wash up on shore or he'll find a bigger log that he can climb on or something like i'm really not concerned and yet the situation is no different than when marie fell in he is no better at swimming than she is Mm -hmm. and yet yeah i really i was never worried about thomas because the film told me i didn't have to be because he's a man he'll be fine he's a man (laughs) absolutely Continuing in the vein of female characters as decorative objects, it's a animated children's film, so we won't say sex objects, but that's the broader extension of this. Whenever male characters greet female characters, they comment on some aspect of their body or their appearance. Oh, I did not notice this. Don't worry, I noticed. (laughs) When George, the lawyer, comes and greets Adelaide, he comments on how soft her skin is. And in fact, before he even arrives, Adelaide says to Duchess, we have to look our best because George is one of our oldest and dearest friends. So, Aaron, I don't know if you knew this, but when you see your oldest and dearest friends, you better look great. That's what that means. Interesting. That's not how I've been treating the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) When O'Malley meets Duchess, he comments on her beautiful eyes, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. Don't like it. Stop. (laughs) I got really mad at how many times he called her baby over the course of the film. And like, I don't think in the past I'd ever made the Thomas O'Malley blue connection Mm. but now it's gonna be like weird blue in my brain every time (laughs) he says like hey baby (laughs) or then he says to the geese after they save him he's like disgruntled and mad and he's like hiya chicks (laughs) and it's like funny because it's like they're birds and they're girls so like Mm -hmm. chicks like i get the joke there but it's just like kind of weird and creepy and why do you need to why can't you just say hi (laughs) yeah why can't you treat female characters as just you know well they're animals so i was gonna say why can't you just treat them as human beings (laughs) (laughs) 
but you I know they're not human beings <laughs> but you that's get my point. fair though <laughs> we have to treat them like human beings in order to empathize with the story blah 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 <laughs> but yeah he why do they have to have pet names mm. i don't remember if he calls any of his other friends or scatman anything that's like related to their gender or beauty <laughs> right <or not. laughs> yeah <laughs> there's more to unpack in the relationship between duchess and o'malley so let's talk about that sure you first <laughs> okay well first i will say i find it very interesting that duchess is essentially a single mother yes there is no discussion whatsoever about the father of the kittens, how the kittens came to be. Mm-hmm. And Duchess very much approaches her courtship, if you can call it that, with O'Malley as a single mother, talking about how she has this responsibility to her kittens. You know, she's attached. She's not just this single woman. She is a single mother. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she's a single mother is, of course, a huge turnoff to O'Malley initially. However, what I do love is that Duchess totally calls him on that fact. Mm. He meets Duchess, comments on how beautiful her eyes are. O'Malley is immediately trying to woo Duchess until he realizes, oh, there are three kittens here. And Duchess says, oh, no poetry to cover the situation, Monsieur O'Malley? I understand perfectly. So she completely catches the kind of relationship and the sort of attachment he is looking for and the fact that he is not necessarily interested in children Mm -hmm. because what a drag. Am I right? Yeah. He is very brief about it, though. Which I think I was pretty happy with his acceptance of his potential like fatherhood role Mm. (laughs) more quickly than I expected. I thought he was going to be more like, get away from me, you little weirdos, but your mom's hot. So I'm going to (laughs) like be over here with her. Yeah. (laughs) But like he's surprised Mm -hmm. because, I mean, she was alone on the riverbank so he made assumptions but he like he calls them cute or something very quickly and then he becomes protective of them very quickly and his fondness for them i think starts to show through more quickly than i expected culminating in that scene above the paris apartment where he says like he he loves the little guys or whatever yeah so he comes around more quickly and it isn't like a big like give him a pat on the back moment i'll love you even though you have three children yeah it's like pretty natural and kind it's just that first initial like of course he would not prefer this to be the situation of course he will recoil when he realizes Mm -hmm. there are children involved Yeah. Yeah. That scene on the rooftop, again, so interesting because they do have a pretty direct conversation about what their partnership would mean and the fact that Thomas O'Malley would really be joining their family. Mm -hmm. 
in a way that actually feels somewhat progressive for 1970 when this film came out. I appreciated that. Yeah, it was nice. It was a little less romantic because it felt kind of businesslike mm-hmm. <laughs> than I remembered, probably because I had did not even understand the words that they were exchanging, really. It was just like she loves him, but she has to go home to her sad owner. And that's the gist of it and all you really need to get out of it anyway. I wish it had been a little more romantic mm. to like develop characters even. I ha- actually kind of appreciated how flirty Duchess is throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't hide her affection for Thomas O'Malley and she seems to genuinely like him and he's mostly a nice guy who's good to her kids and he's helping them get home for no reason. Maybe we have this business like conversation and then we have it's like the tails intertwining bit is really cute. And I just wanted more of like those symbolic moments even. Mm. I think your point is well taken and it's interesting. Like why wasn't there a spaghetti kiss moment? Mm -hmm. Did they avoid that more overtly romantic motif because Duchess is a mother? Oh, interesting. Interesting. So her status as a mother somehow makes her ineligible for that type of whimsical romance. She has to have this business-like conversation out of necessity. Hmm. I mean, perhaps that is more realistic. Yeah, it kind of brings back the geese mm. who mm-hmm. they are commenting on the impropriety mm-hmm. of Thomas traveling with Duchess. I kind of like I feel a little bit like I am the child here and that I'm not quite getting what they're implying <laughs> because she asks, like, are they married or not? And they're like, no, they're not a couple. So him traveling with a woman alone or a mother with three kids, like, that's improper, mm-hmm. I guess. They call him a reprobate and a cad. Right. Like, it seems like a lot for what they're actually doing. But, like, so trying to read into that of, like, do they think that they're together, but they're not married? And like, that's the terribleness of it. Mm -hmm. Or like, I'm not sure what their complaint is actually supposed to be. (laughs) I also would like to point out, I believe it's that same scene where one of the geese calls O'Malley a philanderer who trifles with unsuspecting women's hearts. (laughs) To which Marie responds, how romantic. Oh my gosh. I was just like, Marie. No. Is Marie actually the worst? Is that the takeaway here? I think she gets worse over the course of the film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She starts out very strong and then kind of falls apart. Yeah. Ugh. And then there's that. I think it's in response to that. Or another mention of romance where (laughs) Berlioz calls it sissy stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm like, aha, back to gender roles. Men can't like romance. Of course. Of course not. (laughs) He also almost calls 
women, female cats or something. He almost calls them dames and then switches to damsels at the last minute. Hmm. <laughs> he knows enough to know that that word is inappropriate, but still used damsels. It's funny what the cats know versus what the cats don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like Marie understands the word philanderer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Madame also doesn't have a husband and that doesn't come up at all. That's true. Which I also thought was interesting. I did like the fact that the film does not talk pretty much about these two missing quote unquote men Mm -hmm. from our normal familial situations we've been used to seeing. So like during the discussion of her leaving her money or having heirs or anything like none of that comes up. So I was happy to see that, that like it did not matter that there was no man in the picture for Madame. And then it matters a little bit, but like for good plot related reasons with Duchess, but not like, how are you surviving without him? Yeah. I mean, Madame Adelaide is the OG cat lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she's only at three, but uh, by the end of the film, she's going to have like (laughs) hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds in her mansion with no man. Oh my gosh. Do you think she's going to leave her inheritance to all of them? Yeah. Well, to the charity, probably. No, no. The will's going to go into arbitration because there's going to be a lot of dispute over percentages (laughs) of how that wealth is distributed across all of the cats. It's all in the sequel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That never got made. (laughs) (laughs) If Georges outlives Madame, he's going to be very sad when he has to deal with a hundred cats coming for her money. Yes. (laughs) (sighs) All right. Shall we move on to our least favorite, but one of our more consistent topics of racism? Racism. Yep. Some pretty blatant racism in this movie. Mm-hmm. More very close parallels to Lady and the Tramp. Yes. They got the same jokes. <laughs> same jokes. And it's so helpful because in the opening titles, they tell us that we're going to see some ethnic stereotypes. They tell us that yep. there's a Chinese cat, an Italian cat, all these different ethnicities of cats. So many kinds of cats. (laughs) But it's really the Chinese cat depicted in the most offensive ways. The Chinese cat uses chopsticks to play the piano and is also drawn with buck teeth, which was a stereotype used to degrade Chinese people. The part of everybody wants to be a cat that the Chinese cat Shungan sings is just nonsense Mm -hmm. it's just like let's pick some sort of asian related words Mm -hmm. and put them in the rhythm so he sings shanghai hong kong egg foo young fortune cookie always wrong that's a hot one great like (laughs) what (laughs) yeah yeah especially putting fortune cookie always wrong that's i guess supposed to be a joke of course, they're wrong. They're mass produced. <laughs> I had to say something negative about one of the most tangentially related aspects of Asian culture. Right. Yeah. Ugh. 
like really guys yep this is all you could think of you're super talented writers and this is this is what you got yep yep it's bad and it's really bad. Disney Plus does include their new disclaimer at the beginning of this film because of that. And then there's the American scat cat jazz band leader type role. I know that he's a cat, but they also chose to make scat cat a black cat. They did. They did make that choice. It just seems yeah. questionable. Seems questionable to me. What's that from? Go. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Finding Nemo? Oh, that's a good guess. It's from Tarzan. Mm. It's when Tantor, baby Tantor, is there. Everybody else is playing in the water and he sticks his little foot in the oh, water. Yeah. And it's like cold and kind of goopy. And go, Seems questionable to me. <laughs> it's a good reference. <laughs> I liked it. But yes, it does. <laughs> I don't know how this if this plays into it at all but each of the kittens has like an adult doppelganger so Toulouse looks like Thomas O'Malley Duchess and Marie Mm. look the same and now finally we have Scat Cat who looks like Berlioz yeah so maybe we needed like I don't know why that matters but it would have been kind of weird to see those two parallels and then for Berlioz to not have someone. Hmm. But like you can make both cats a different color. There are other ways to solve this problem. Right. But maybe they needed their next most important cat to match Berlioz just Hmm. to like complete this connection. They both play music. Like it kind of works. Yeah. Why not make O'Malley black then? Yeah. I don't know. But agreed. Like they just, make these choices as if it's a given that like we'll just make him a black cat yeah Duh. <laughs> it's not great it's just another like tick in the disney not thinking about anything it does with black people yeah basically i also read some interesting takes i think on the nature of the alley cats all being of these different races that makes them immigrants mostly to France continuing to create that classist divide hmm. also from like French purebred to mixed race people, hmm. even though like Toulouse and Berlioz have American accents and they're short haired American cats. It doesn't really make sense. And Eva Gabor is Hungarian. <laughs> and Marie's <laughs> British has a British accent. So like none of them are French, but the contrast is still there. And then the fact that O'Malley his names cover all of Europe, as Duchess says. His full name is Abraham DeLacy. Thomas O'Malley <laughs> Cat. So his names are from various places, but Hebrew, Gaelic, Italian, Arabic, Irish. So, like, he in himself kind of embodies this worldliness, but also this mixed raceness and mm-hmm. how that makes him interesting and like something to gawk at but also differentiates him from duchess and removes him from her world and he belongs with these other people from all different sorts of places and she belongs back home with her french owner and 
Yeah. But then they do mix. He does end up in her family. Right. And then they all end up living there in integration. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. There's also a line that I cannot let go unmentioned, whereas Thomas is dropping them back home. They're walking through the neighborhood and he says of the homes in Madame's neighborhood, dig these fancy wigwams. Yep. Yep. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> like, is that slang from any time that people would use wigwam colloquially to mean homes? And it is at all not offensive and a weird word to take from Native American culture. It's obviously an appropriation of indigenous culture. However, I do think wigwam was used colloquially in the same way that powwow was used mm. colloquially. Great. At least there's that. A little, just a little sprinkle of ageism, making mm. fun of George, who is an older adult, the lawyer character who mm -hmm. can barely make it up the stairs unassisted, has huge Coke bottle glasses because his eyesight is so poor. Mm -hmm. So just really playing up those stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. I think it's time for Aaron's Extras. Aaron's Extras. Thank you, Rachel. On to my segment. <laughs> <laughs> did you recognize the voice of the russian cat billy boss no i can't even remember him speaking at any point in the <laughs> film <laughs> if i'm honest he has a very deep supposed to be russian accent uh -huh. and it's thurl ravenscroft what? good old thurl <laughs> he's showing up everywhere now it's my mission to just be like hey that's thurl ravenscroft bam bam can find him anywhere <laughs> Pat Bertram and George Lindsay were cast as the farm dogs, Napoleon Lafayette. Okay. And that proved so popular with the filmmakers that another scene was included to have the dogs in it when Edgar returns to the farm. Like they didn't plan for there to be two dog scenes, but they loved the dog scenes so much they added another one. I will say the dog scenes are very funny. They're the most cartoonish sequences. So I can see if Reitherman was really aiming for something that would be sensational and popular, playing up those comedic bits makes sense. Mm -hmm. I just wish they had more to do with the plot because they diverge so drastically. And the second scene, especially with retrieving the hat, is so long. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, very it's funny. Long. I chuckled. But like it's very slow because he has to be sneaky and quiet. It just inches along. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this doesn't even have to do with the cats. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> so he's also, he goes back because he's so concerned about his hat and his umbrella. But he's totally chill letting the dogs have his motorcycle sidecar right. forever, I guess. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, this was also Paul's problem. <laughs> he watched it with me and he was like, wouldn't the sidecar be the most obvious part of this crime? Yeah. So also going back to Pat Bertram, who's Napoleon, he's a famous actor. He was on Green Acres and other TV shows at the time. But like, I don't know those TV shows. And yet I really recognized his voice and mm. I couldn't figure out who it was. 
And this is not a character we've seen yet, but it's a character I know better. He also will play the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood. Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh. So I like that clicked with me pretty quickly. I was like, I know this voice. Why? Mm -hmm. Now that's Pat Buttram. I'm learning about so many famous actors and like making so many connections through the course of this podcast. It's very fun for me. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) Five of Disney's legendary nine old men worked on the project. So they are still kicking and working hard, which is kind of unbelievable that they've been here this long. Mm -hmm. Good job, y'all. This was the last time we'll see Bill Thompson, who plays Uncle Waldo the drunken goose in this film. (laughs) Thompson played Mr. Smee and the white rabbit. Oh, mm -hmm. so a good voice that we will no longer be hearing from in the animated films. And lastly, Japan loves Marie. (laughs) Yes. I read that too. They're all about her. It feels like Marie, I mean, well behind, but like Marie and Hello Kitty have a very similar appeal. So Marie has her own manga series. (laughs) Of course she, she and does. And she starred in a Japanese music video called Disney Marie Walk in Paris. <laughs> cool. Uh, <laughs> definitely got to YouTube that later. <laughs> and at Tokyo Disneyland's Fantasyland, there is an entire store dedicated to Marie. Whoa. And the park calls Cat Day, which <gasps> is celebrated on February 22nd. Mark it down, Rachel. They call it Marie Day in the parks. <laughs> Aaron, what are you mm-hmm. doing February 22nd, 2022? Probably whatever you tell me to do, and it's going to be about cats. We're going to Tokyo Disney. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's going to be so overwhelming. Like, I bet everyone is just like, wearing cat stuff like cosplaying all their favorite cat characters yeah Yeah, i bet they are should i just like dress as a dog (laughs) (laughs) you can dress up as pluto and be a party pooper oh that'd be fun i can like chase people in cat costumes (laughs) that would go great for you i'm sure okay 2022 I'm ready. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Those are Aaron's extras. I realized something I forgot to say. Oh, what? You mentioned in your synopsis that Edgar's final plan is to ship the cats off to Timbuktu. Yes. And that got me curious about why Timbuktu is the go-to place when we want to reference somewhere that is far away. And Mm -hmm. so I went down just a very small internet rabbit hole about that. Timbuktu is an actual place, in case listeners may not know this. It's a city in the African country of Mali. Timbuktu is actually quite a remote place. It's very difficult to travel to. And it earned this reputation because British colonists wanted to access it because it was a very wealthy place, there were a lot of resources there. So this connotation of being difficult to get to far away is actually rooted in British colonialism. Yay. Of course it is. Of course. Of like course what else is. could it have been? Right. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> 
going back to my original question from earlier in the podcast, do you think you would put this in the Walt Disney section of history or is this a post-Walt film? I think because of all the changes, the very drastic changes that Wolfgang Reitherman made, I would have to put it in the post-Walt section. It seems to me that the film did not actually retain any of the major components that Walt really wanted to see in it in terms of the character development and the emotion, as well as the primary narrative arc. So as far as Walt's influence, it seems like that didn't extend much beyond a green light to make an animated movie about cats. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I think in like the spirit of that conversation, it's not a Walt associated film, but like historically, if you need to know the last animated film, well, I don't even know that yet. Cause Honestly, these films are often in development so many years before. It's possible that the next film will have a little bit of Walt where he like told someone to write something and that means he was involved. Yeah. But it does have a little bit of his mark on it historically. So I acknowledge that. But yes, agreed. I don't think I would lump this in with the Walt Disney films. So I think it goes from Snow White to Jungle Book and then end parentheses. Yeah. (laughs) Aaron, what grade would you assign to the Aristocats on behalf of 1970 audiences. I would give it an A minus. Sure. It's another well-liked film. I don't think it has resonated quite as much as some of the A films that I've given that grade to, but it did do well. It made a good bit of money. Critics were overall pleasant about it if they were like, it's kind of superficial. So A minus. Yeah. That makes sense. What do you say for 2021? I would say B minus. Okay. I think that is in response to its mediocrity, (laughs) Uh, as well as the occasional racism and sexism that we see. Mm -hmm. It's not a great movie. It's not a horrendously offensive movie. Would I encourage people to watch it? Eh, Probably not. So yeah, B minus. Makes sense to me. It's the most meh grade. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, maybe a solid C is, but. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Feels a little better than a C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Do you have a recommendation for us this week? I'm glad you asked. When I was looking up the Aristocats, I stumbled across a couple articles that referenced the Washington University of St. Louis Aristocats, which is an all-Disney acapella group. (gasps) What? I know. (laughs) So college acapella, they have a lot of YouTube videos. They sing exclusively Disney songs. They have acapella versions of some of my favorite Disney songs that aren't necessarily as popular more broadly, such as Gospel Truth from Hercules. Mm. Yeah. They also do Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, naturally. If you like acapella, it might be worth checking out on YouTube. Again, that's the Washington University of St. Louis Aristocats. 
And watching their videos actually reminded me of some of my favorite YouTube videos, which are of the professional acapella group, Voctive, which I know I've shared with you before, Aaron, but I haven't (laughs) shared with our listeners, so I thought I would do it now. Some of the members of Voctive are former members of the Voices of Liberty from Disney World. So they have Mm -hmm. a background in the Disney brand and culture. And they do a variety of songs, including a lot of Broadway. But they also do several medleys of Disney princess songs, of Disney love songs. And they also just do full-on covers of some really great songs such as How Far I'll Go from Moana, which is delightful. So if you want some really, really great acapella Disney-themed, check out Voctive. That's like the musical term octave with a V at the beginning. They're very good. All right. Thank you so much, dear listeners, for joining us. We hope you'll join us next time for Robin Hood. Until then, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at decondisney, and please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Ah!